Welcome everyone to another episode of Take Note, a podcast where we interview uh, entrepreneurs and change makers making a, a difference in their profession and community. Today we are joined by litigator and, and trial attorney Parag Amin. This is a special episode for us today because Prague also happens to be a very close friend of mine and was one of my groomsmen at my wedding. Prague and I first met at a meeting for lawyers who meditate here in Los Angeles. And we'll probably talk a little bit more about that because it's probably, you know, raises some questions. And that was about five years ago. While we, while most of the meeting was silent, we both enjoyed meeting new people. And it was only a matter of time until Prague and I started chatting. After running into each other a few times, we realized how much we had in common and at one point discussed joining our law firms. In the end, we didn't, we didn't end up wanting to um, jeopardize our friendship, so we kept our law firm separate. But it's something that was actually an interesting discussion that we went through in, in, in the course of talking to many different people, uh, came to the conclusion that you know, it was maybe best to have separate law firms but work together on many cases, which we have done uh, over the years. But this is definitely something that maybe is worth talking about today because it's a question for a lot of entrepreneurs in terms of, you know, when when's the right time to partner? How do you choose your partners? What are what are considerations to make? Parag is not only a fantastic business and personal injury lawyer, but also a super interesting person with a deep compassion and empathy for those around him. As a result of his dedication to helping his clients, he has been featured in numerous publications, including the LA Times and Rolling Stone magazine. He has been selected as rising star as a rising star uh, by super lawyers in 2017, 2018, and 2020. Uh, we're gonna have to ask what happened in 2019. But <laughs> he I did secured- get awarded for 2019, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did okay, okay, all right. So he has uh, secured uh, large settlements as, for his clients and obtained successful outcomes when clients had lost hope. His background in finance and other jobs that he will discuss today has given him a unique ability to connect with clients and build a truly service-oriented practice. Without further ado, Parag, welcome to Take Note. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so it's great to have you. And, you know, I have a bunch of questions that, you know, I, I want to kind of go through today. But also, this is going to be a very also kind of organic conversation. You know, you and I have had many, many conversations, sometimes over a few drinks about life and, and business and, you know, sitting in our office chatting about how, you know, we are going to map the future for, for our firms. But, you know, just for the listeners, you know, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your, your background, kind of where you grew up and how you, you know, went from Maryland, a small town in Maryland to, to the bright lights of LA. Yeah. So, so I grew up in a small town known as Salisbury, Maryland. It's like a very small rural place. Population was about 30,000 people. And so it's, it was pretty laid back there. Everybody kind of knew everybody. And so what brought me out here was I had a friend during college who uh, was a party promoter and uh, he was promoting a party here in Los Angeles. And so he's like, Hey, look, you know, why don't you come out here and, and come with me, come check it out. So I did. And I fell in love with LA. I mean, everything from the culture here to the, the weather, to the people, there's always something to do. And so I had this idea that, you know what, one day I'd love to go live in LA and so when I started applying for law schools, UCLA and USC were my top choices. And so luckily I got in and it ended up going to USC and I haven't looked back since. You know, the plan has always been to come out here and make a living and I don't see myself moving out of here anytime soon. It's amazing. Goal is to make a living and you made a life out here. You know, yeah, huh? absolutely. <laughs> All right. And yeah, you got married. How, how, much, how long were you in LA before you got married? 
I was here for five years before I ended up getting married. So my now wife, I did know her before I moved out here, but uh, we weren't dating or anything. We started dating in law school and, and it just kind of, you know, worked out really well. She likes the joke that I moved out here because she lived out here. Don't tell her that that's not exactly true, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe but, there's uh, some, some, maybe some element of truth to that. Who knows, you know? Uh, yeah, uh, who knows? You know, <laughs> is a powerful thing. So, so in either case, it, it worked out really well. So married to the girl of my dreams. I, I love living in LA. It's the city of my dreams in terms of living in uh, different places and uh, no regrets. You know, honestly, every day here in LA, it feels like I just landed. I've been here since 08. So it's been 12 years now. And it just, it never gets old. Yeah, yeah. And I want to talk a little bit more about, you know, Maryland too and growing up. But I mean, I also want to ask, you know, what, it, what do you think it is about LA that is so attractive to so many people? Because from around the world, you know, people want to come to LA. But I know, and I always thought about like, what is it exactly that's so captivating about the city? What, what do you think? I think that it's, it's like a land of dreamers. You know, everybody, it feels like comes out here with a dream and hope of doing something. You know, for some people that's show business, whether that's, you know, the movies, whether that's singing uh, or dancing. But for other people, you know, like you and me, I think uh, we, we both kind of had the similar idea that we'd love to come out here and maybe start our own practices. I think that you, you had that pretty early on when you moved from Arizona as well, right? You wanted yeah. to come out here and eventually start your own practice. And I, I think that the, the culture and the vibe of the city very much supports that. It's very kind of free-spirited. And that's one of the things I love about living here is that everybody here, for the most part, is, is supportive and everybody's kind of aspiring to be something. And, and that kind of thing is, is, is electric and it's, it's infectious. You know, it's, it's always good to be around people who are chasing something and, and dreaming bigger dreams. And, and I think that that's one of the biggest reasons why people love L.A. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. I think, you know, that's what it was for me, the, the allure of, I mean, sometimes the, it was the bright lights. I also moved from a somewhat small town, probably not as, as, tall, as small as Salisbury, but, you know, Tucson, Arizona. It's a college town. And, you know, I grew up there. I went to school there. And, you know, I, I always wanted to do something bigger. And I, and I always loved, you know, entertainment. And, and it's funny, you mentioned, you know, some people come out here to do to dance. I didn't come out here to dance. But you know, I, I technically took a couple of classes when I was, you know, when I first moved out here. And, and I think just the, you, the, the energy, right? I, I think you and I both respond to energy of people of, of, you know, in life and events. You know, we both we both are kind of gravitate towards that. And I think that's what it is about LA. You know, you meet a lot of people with who are really, yeah, trying to do something. And and sometimes it may seem, you know, crazy that, you know, that they're trying to do things. But, you know, this this podcast is a lot about entrepreneurs and on and entrepreneur entrepreneurialism and entrepreneurship. And, and I think you have to be crazy, right? You have to be a little crazy to start a practice in LA and a lawyer's I mean, I had, I was working in Tucson at the, before I moved out here and, you know, the partners of the firms were, firm, they were encouraging. They're like, yeah, you know, great. You passed the California bar. That was hard. Great. You know, good for you. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to move out there. They're like, why? Like we were in a recession. It was like 2010, 2009, 2010. They're like, why on earth would you move out to LA? There are so many lawyers out there and there's, you know, what are you going to do? And I said, you know, I'll figure it out. You know, I, I had a, I had a job lined up and a contract job with a, with a firm and, and yeah, it was, it was, a, you know, it was, it was tough. And I think as you know, you and I can chat a little bit about, you know, the challenges of obviously, you know, opening up your own firm and building it and growing it. 
it's it's not for the faint of heart, but but I think you know you and I now are at a place where probably maybe we didn't even imagine right six five six years ago. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know what's interesting is is that whole that that idea of your boss is telling you that you know what are you going to do there and being so pessimistic about it, and you deciding to come here anyways. I think that that embodies the spirit of LA. And so when I was in law school, my my law school roommate lived in Hawaii for a couple of years before he, before he came here for law school. And he was an avid surfer, very good at surfing, loved to surf. And so he kind of got me into it. And one morning I had gone out by myself and I drove up the one, which is the Pacific Coast Highway towards Malibu. And it was early in the morning. It was about 6.30. And, you know, this I was in law school. This is, this is during law school. Yeah. Okay. And I was putting on uh, my wetsuit. I was, you know, it was, it was the middle of law school. You're nervous. I mean, that's, you know, we can talk about that too. How insecure law school can make you because, yeah. you know, you're, you're used to being uh, doing well academically and it's such a challenging environment. And because everything's graded on a curve, it just becomes increasingly competitive. And that can take like a, a heavy mental stress if you let it. And uh, so we could talk a little bit more about, you know, dealing with stress too, because uh, I think that a lot of people are dealing with that right now. So I, so I end up going to uh, the surf spot on the one right up PCH and I'm putting on my wetsuit and I see two homeless guys who had just woken up and they were, they had their sleeping bags and they had their sleeping bags along the coast. And just then the sun was rising too, and they had woken up and we just kind of had a casual conversation about, you know, them and the fact that they're living there and they're homeless. And they, you know, in reality, they woke up to a multi-million dollar view, even though they were homeless, right? And, and they, they, they were in good spirits. They were good natured about it. And for whatever reason, that just kind of stuck with me. Like, this, this is a city that'll find a way to take care of you, you know, that, that you, you just got to have, you know, hope and you'll always find a way here regardless. I mean, because, you know, here's two guys looking at a multi-million dollar view waking up first thing in the morning and some people would argue they've got nothing but you know that that view is just incredible right and so i think that you know in this city if you just stay focused and keep pushing like you'll, you'll find a way here and i think that's what's so uh, attractive about los angeles yeah yeah absolutely yeah so i mean i think talking you you raised the question about like you know the, the idea of doubt and in law school and and the the stress and pressure that law school puts on people. And I think that's a, you know, it's a great, great segue because, you know, I dealt with that a lot too in law school. I think anyone who, you know, if, if you're not a lawyer and you're thinking, you know, you see, oh, lawyers have this, you know, somewhat glamorous life, you know, as portrayed in, in, in uh, the movies and in, on TV, it's obviously very, very different than, you know, than what they show on TV. You know, unfortunately, you know, they, they never, took, they never show the, they never show the research, they never show the time on Westlaw or yeah, you know, drafting things. Exactly. You never, they never exactly. show the, the stuff that's not sexy. Exactly. Exactly. So, but it's, it's so funny, but you know, the, the idea of, of doubt and persistence, I think that's something that every entrepreneur, every, anyone who's striving for anything, honestly, deals with. And, and how have you dealt with those two things? You know, and maybe talking a little about law school and even in, once you started opening your own practice, how, has, how have you balanced the whole idea of doubt and persistence? So I think that doubt is, is always something that I think it can be a negative thing or a positive thing. So, so with self-doubt, I think it can come from a place of either feeling unprepared or feeling like you're not good enough. 
right? So if it comes from a place of feeling like you're not good enough, that's a destructive type of self-doubt because when, when you come, when you approach something from that perspective, you'll never be good enough. You'll never measure up and that'll affect your performance. But I think that if you look at doubt as if, you know, am I, am I sufficiently prepared? Did, did I put in the work? I think that that kind of doubt can actually help propel people forward and it's helped me propel me forward in terms of making sure that I'm adequately prepared. Like, for example, when I'm trying cases or litigating cases, every single time it's, it's, it's an older attorney who I'm going up against. And, you know, it's scary because there's a lot of unknowns in litigation and trial work. And part of, it, part of dealing with the unknown is, is you have a lot of variables and you're not sure exactly how you're going to be able to react. And the reality is you can't prepare for every uh, circumstance or contingency that might come up. So you just have to take your time to prepare and then trust yourself, you know, kill the self-doubt that's I'm not good enough. I think that that's the, that's the type of uh, thinking that, that really can have no positive benefit. Whereas that, that feeling of doubt of, hey, did I do the work? Did I, you know, make sure I reviewed everything I needed to review or, you know, prepare everything I needed to prepare? I think thinking of things that way helps all of us get further because we're better prepared when we show up. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, that that's like the biggest thing as it relates to self-doubt is that it's inevitable in everybody's life. I think that everybody has it, but it's just maintaining it and, and, and persevering through it. Just continuing to believe in yourself that, look, at the end of the day, you've got to keep pushing forward. And, you know, I, I've got this running joke that I, I sometimes tell my wife, uh, you know, when I've had a bad day, which is, you know, I can't lose forever, right? I just, you know, it's, it, it's going to get better. And, and so I, I think if you approach things with that mentality, it'll inevitably everything will get better. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I love that. And uh, yeah, I want to talk more about, you know, quotes and books too. We're going to get definitely get to that. But it reminds me, I think it was James, James Clear, Atomic Habits, or one of those books where I was listening to, and he talks about, you know, the importance of the word yet, you know, you're not there yet. Right. And I always love the idea that like, oh, it's always really important to remind yourself as an entrepreneur, as in sports and whatever you do in life is that everyone starts as an amateur before you become a professional. Right. And, and I think, you know, reminding yourself of that, that, but, but you, to get to the professional, you got to put in hours and hours and hours of work and repetition. And, and, you know, there, there is no shortcut, you know, to really to get to the top. And I think, you know, we're oftentimes today with technology and new apps and new, you know, software, we're all looking for short, you know, everyone's looking for shortcuts. I look for shortcuts, you know, because I think we also want to make ourselves more efficient. But I find myself, you know, talking about, you know, you know, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I, it's it, talking about doubt and, and fear. Sometimes this shows up as like me looking for new tools and new ways to do things is sometimes is my way of maybe just distracting from what the, the, the challenge is ahead of me, right? I've got to do something that's really hard and instead I'll, you know, get, allow myself to get distracted and look into a, a more efficient way of doing what I'm doing. But real, realistically, we just got to do it, you know, do the work. That's true. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think that both have their places, though, right? So, you know, it's, it's good to always look for ways to do things more efficiently. And I love that about, you know, you and your practice. You know, you've always been at the forefront of, of making sure that, you know, you're utilizing technology well. And I think that's great because it can help you in a lot of ways. So, so I think that, you know, kind of, Setting so so one one example for me that I've found useful in my own life is is I, I do the same thing 
So if I'm looking for a solution, I will just set a timeline for myself, right? So I'm giving myself either X days, X hours, X minutes to find this solution or to look for the solution. So it doesn't end up becoming, you know, me spending hours and hours or days and days looking for a solution and avoiding doing the work. Yeah. Uh, and vice versa, you know, the work ultimately needs to be done, but if you can do it more efficiently with a, a tool or a solution, then, then by all means do that. But, right. but yeah, I think that a lot of us try to, you know, sometimes avoid the, the hard stuff by looking for ways to do things easier. Right. And I think, you know, one of the things about that is all of us ultimately at the end of the day, you know, we like comfort as, as humans, we all want to be comfortable and, the hard thing about doing hard work is that typically it's not comfortable. Right. You know, the hard thing about getting feedback, whether it's, you know, public speaking or whether it's, you know, a draft on, on something that you've done and sending it to a client, if you're not completely sure about it, I mean, you know, you're, you're going to get at least some negative feedback uh, about how to correct it. And, and, you know, that that's uncomfortable. But at the end of the day, that's the only way that we can grow. So I found that to be incredibly helpful too, is to, just kind of focus on, on not seeking comfort. You know, at the end of the day, it's the discomfort that helps us grow. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And I think that's so important. You're right. I think the discomfort really, yeah, does help us grow. And, and I think being, you know, talking a little bit, I think about how we, how we become okay with discomfort, right? I, I think you and I are both interested in meditation. You know, we, we met at a, at a law and meditation meeting, you know, in LA, you know, how many, four or five years ago now. And tell me about like how meditation has influenced that, you know, your ability to deal with discomfort and, and even your practice in general. Yeah. So meditation, when I started meditation, I started it because I was, I was feeling a lot of discomfort. I was feeling overwhelmed with, with school, work, and all the other challenges that you have. You know, I'm living across the country from my parents, you know, so, so I don't have any family here in California. So all of those things are starting to weigh on me. I mean, I was lucky enough to have good friends who would help me through. But, you know, with, when you don't know anybody here and it's a new city, um, other than the friends you made in law school, it can be challenging, particularly when everybody's busy, everybody's working, and it feels like you're going through something alone. And so I turned to meditation to help me with that because I saw that, you know, the, the, the alternative path, the destructive path that we hear a lot about in law school is, is the substance abuse issues that lawyers fall into. And for whatever reason, uh, lawyers have multiples. The, the, the rate at which lawyers get addicted to substances is multiples higher than the, the, the person who's not a lawyer. And I think that a large part of that is the inability to deal with stress. So I recognized that pretty early on that I needed to find a tool to be able to deal with that stress, to find an outlet that was positive. And so that's what I used meditation to do was, was just help quiet my mind, ease down. Because, you know, one of the things I think that, that Eastern philosophy recognizes that Western philosophy necessarily doesn't is this idea that you shouldn't always be thinking. You, you want to leave a gap. You want to leave a space so that you can actually adjust and react. And, you know, this, this, the, the whole Descartes, uh, I think, therefore I am, I think that mentality really summarizes the, the intellectual approach to things. But the problem with that is, is that there's no end to thought if, if you let it run on forever. Yeah. And the human mind isn't truly made to think endlessly. You know, it needs a pause. It needs a break. And it needs to be able to reflect and take all the different pieces that we gather, you know, in a day from our experience 
to, to be able to put, put the, the puzzle together and come up with a solution. But if we're constantly bombarding it with more and more information, then it never ends. And so what I found meditation does for me is it ends up helping me slow down and step back and see the bigger picture. So I found that it's helped me tremendously in terms of dealing with difficult opposing counsel, dealing with difficult situations, dealing with difficult cases where I'm not sure exactly what the next move is or what the right move is because uh, there's, there's a lot of variables. So the ability to step back and reflect on the bigger picture has helped me make better decisions. And ultimately, that's really what I was looking for was, was to, the ability to make better decisions and feel more comfortable about it. Yeah. yeah. What, what brought you to the, uh, what brought you to the meeting? Cause I think you had been meditating much longer than I had when I, when I first started, that was, I was brand new to it, but I think you've you been doing it for a while, right? Yeah. 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 For me, it was like, it was community It's really about like, there's meditating and meditate, you know, the kind of Buddhist world, they call it a Sangha of like the family, like the, a community of meditators. And I think, there's real power, you know, going back to energy, you know, to meditate in a group like that versus on your own, it provides a different energy. And I've, you know, now uh, been fortunate to go to several different retreats, you know, extended retreats, you know, in meditation. And, and it's, it was, it's really powerful to kind of sit with a group. And also I think the, the discussion that we had afterwards as lawyers, because, you know, you realize that you're not alone. And I think that is so, so important. So valuable is to have a group of, attorneys dealing with similar issues, dealing with challenging opposing counsel, who knows, sometimes they could be your opposing counsel, you know, who knows, you know, in that in that room. And, and you realize that, you know, you can separate the person from maybe the the issue, right? You can you can make that separation, which is so important. You know, I think we're so lawyers, there's, there's so many issues with lawyers that and, and identity, right? I think we, we are so we work so hard, spend so much money, you know, go through so much to, to get, to get this name, to get this title. And it's, and then we, we, I think tie our identity so much to that title that it creates, it creates a lot of suffering for us. Right. Because now anytime that identity can be is, and it, and it's a kind of a flimsy identity because you, anytime that identity is challenged, or that any identity is saying, oh, wait, maybe I'm not as good as I think I am, or this identity says I should be, all of a sudden we, we go through some stress or some, some you know, challenging time and suffering and turmoil in, internally because of that. So I think it's like really about letting go of that identity. You know, it's, it's, I love your, you know, the Descartes quote and, and, and contrasting that to really, you know, Eastern philosophy, because I think, I think meditation, a, a lot of it for, for me has been about letting go is how do we let go? How do we let go of the identity of the constructs that we have of the stories that we have in our head about how things should be? Because so oftentimes those stories are what's creating the suffering, right? It's creating the stress as lawyers, you know, we, yes, we have deadlines. Yes. There's, there's briefs and motions that are due, especially in litigation. You know, there's, there's difficult timelines, difficult opposing counsel, you know, you and I have worked on some challenging cases together where our clients are not always agreeable, not always easy to deal with. Opposing counsel is not always easy to deal with. But, you know, I've always been, you know, I've been impressed with how you kind of deal with opposing counsel in a kind of very pragmatic way and not making personal, you know, not making it personal when sometimes, you know, opposing counsel may say things that are attacking and, and trying to kind of get under your skin. 
I mean, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with, you know, difficult opposing counsel, you know, in times where, yeah, sometimes they're, they're trying to use their leverage in a way that, you know, tries to get under your skin? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of litigation is, is about leverage. And a lot of it ends up, I've realized over time, is, is in a way a mind game that, you know, opposing counsel's going to be posturing. They're going to be talking about, you know, earlier on in my career, you know, they wanted to talk to me about how many years of experience they had, you know, when I was a baby lawyer coming out, when I was practicing for maybe two or three years, you know, they wanted to tell me how they had decades of experience. And that doesn't come up as much anymore. It still does, but I think that, that it comes up to a lesser extent. And so the reality of it is, I, I've, I've learned now that whenever opposing counsel tells me how long they've been practicing, they feel a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. Because yeah. the only reason they're telling me that is for their own ego. They want to mm-hmm. prove to themselves that they're up to the challenge. Because the reality is, it doesn't matter to me whether they've been practicing for five years or 50 years. If they're good, they're good. And if they're mm-hmm. right, they're right. And it, you know, ultimately, it just comes down, I think, to the skill, let, skill set and the skill level. So uh, meditation has helped me tremendously in that regard because it's helped me kind of see through those issues where, you know, they'll layer on with the ego and the personal attacks, things that have nothing to do with the case. And so, you know, I found that making those kinds of personal attacks ends up just wasting everybody's time and it doesn't help the case move forward. It doesn't help the case in any way. And so, you know, what I found to be much more uh, helpful, much more successful now is that actually reminds me of a story where one of the first cases I had, it was an older lawyer, he had been sworn in in 1986. So to put that into context, I was born in 1986. <laughs> okay. And so he had been practicing law as long as I had been alive. And so it was a very contentious case. And there was a lot of money involved. It was a multi-six-figure case. And it was one of my first cases that I had uh, coming out of law school with my own firm. And at the beginning of that case, every turn, you know, we made it a point to let me know how I was less experienced, how I didn't know what I was doing. I remember uh, at the deposition or one of the depositions in that case, it was one of my first depositions I'd ever taken. And at the end, there's something called a stipulation. And so it's kind of a, it's, it, it's, it's a long thing and I won't get into it right now, but it's about essentially who's going to take possession of the transcript, what's going to happen to it. And I didn't want to get it wrong. So I had it written down on a piece of paper and I was reading it. And he starts laughing. Literally, my clients in this room, his clients are in the room, court reporters are in the room, and he starts laughing. He's like, you don't even know, you don't even know this uh, stipulation. You're just reading it off a piece of paper. So that made me really uncomfortable. And uh, I realized, you know, I got through the stipulation, and then we ended up settling that case, it settled favorably for my client. And then it's funny because I had another case with that same attorney uh, a couple years later. And at that point, you know, he gave me props. He's like, look, like you're a smart kid. He was an older guy. So that's kind of how he referred to me. And he said, you know, look, we should try to resolve this. And so we ended up sitting down and talking about the case over a couple of beers. And we didn't settle it that night. But the next morning, he gave me a call, and we ended up settling the case. And you know, that wouldn't have been as possible. It wouldn't have been possible had I not, you know, come to the realization at a certain point that you know, at the end of the day, it's about resolving the case. And regardless of what he says about me or my client, facts are the facts. And, you know, if, if we can't settle it, we've got to go to trial. But I think that it's 
the, the biggest part of it is having that comfort level with yourself and becoming comfortable with yourself so you can take the criticism and, and continue with your job rather than letting it eat away and destroy you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I was going to, I was in, you know, first going to ask like, what was, what was different about talking to him three years later versus, you know, that initial interaction with him? How, how was he different towards you? He, he was more respectful. I would say yeah, he had more deference. You know, when I take a position, it wasn't an immediate attack. It seemed like he was actually considering what I was saying to him, you know, and part of it was also, there were three years of experience, not just on that case, but with a lot of other cases that helped me you know, as a lawyer and looking back, you know, I, I always like to reflect back and, and think about, okay, what were the lessons there? So right. I could use them later. Right. And, you know, I was looking at it from the lens of, okay, from a legal perspective, would I have done anything differently? Did I handle it correctly? And the reality of it is, is that I realized that everything was done correctly. It, so, so it wasn't, I was doing, you know, a bunch of things wrong here. And then all of a sudden, three years later, I had figured it out. It was, uh, a lot of it was just the head game, the mind game. And I think, you know, part of it, and it wasn't just that one particular lawyer. I think part of litigation in particular is the other lawyer wants to see if you can, and can make it through, right? If if you've got what it takes in terms of mental stamina and perseverance to to be able to continue on despite these attacks. And so I, I think that the best way to deal with it is to just not spend any energy on the attacks, right? Not let it eat away with you because that's, precious mental energy that you're going to need to do things that are actually productive. Yeah, absolutely. So true. And I think in life too, you know, like it, it's, it's, you know, we're all, we all encounter things that we, you know, we are doing for the first time. Right. And, and sometimes higher stakes situations, you know, law is generally kind of, you know, high stakes. It's not, you know, it's not life or death, which sometimes we, I think interpreted as, you know, I think physiologically because, you know, the way our fight or flight, you know, motor is kicked off. But, but yeah, I mean, I think we often, because I think loss of identity does do that to you, you know, like the, the challenge to your identity does trigger something in us. But I think, you know, you're, you know, I've been, you know, one of the things that I think has been so helpful for me, and I think you do very, very well is you know, the preparation, right? I think the preparation in, you know, in sports is so important and the practice, how you practice is you're going to be how you play. You know, you, I know with your, with your cases do a really great job of, of spending the time sitting down with a client, you know, before, before the deposition or before, you know, a hearing or something like that and, and really getting to know the facts and ver- clarifying everything with them. Where did you, where did you learn that and how do you feel that has helped you be successful in, in the practice? I think that, and I appreciate the kind words, by the way. So I think that to be successful in anything requires the, the ability and the determination to go through the details. I think that, you know, regardless of what field you're in, particularly in the law, but regardless of the field, it's, it's so incredibly important to pay attention to the details. And a lot of us, uh, it's easy to overlook the details because going into the details and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is it can be uncomfortable. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of mental energy to go through that, to make sure that you're adequately prepared. But ultimately, that's what it takes to win is, is you've got to make sure those details are right. And, and so that's what drives me is I don't look at it just as a case. I look at my cases as this is, there's, there's a person here or there's a family here or there's a business here that's owned by this person or these people. And they're going to be affected if I don't do the work. I'm going to let them down. So it's when I take that approach as opposed to, 
an egotistical approach of, oh, I can't lose. Uh, I don't want my reputation to go down. I mean, sure, that, obviously that's a part of it. You know, you don't want to be known as the lawyer who loses a lot. Yeah. But I, I think that from a broader perspective of needing to keep going, you know, focusing on the bigger picture of how you're helping people, how it makes a difference, that's been huge for me. And I've, I've noticed that about you too with your practice. And that's, you know, one of the, the many reasons we were talking about merging our firms is that mentality for, for client service and customer service and, and making sure you take a, a customer and client centric approach to, to practicing law. I mean, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I, I echo your, your, you know, underscore of how important it is to you know, prepare and the, and the value of preparation with, with all these clients, you know, whether it be a negotiation or, you know, you're, you're preparing for, you know, a deposition or, you know, me before I get on a call to discuss a contract or a term sheet, you know, the more preparation you do, and it's not always easy because we always, we have so many things on our plate, right? And there's so many things that we need to do, especially as owners of law firms, but to set that time aside to really do that, clients don't really see it. I don't think they always really recognize it. And, you know, but, but, you know, that really, I think creates a, a difference between, you know, a decent lawyer and one of the the better lawyers is is taking that time to really think through those those issues. For me, in terms of you know, the client services and and building a law firm like that, I think it's it's I think it starts with you know the owner, right? You are the owner, I'm the owner, and you know I think you and I do see eye to eye on a lot of those things. And and it's yeah, I mean I think it's interesting even in the context of partnering up in in, in with a business, you know, entrepreneurship in general, you know, having a co-founder, or having you know multiple co-founders in a business. You know, we see a lot of successful companies, you know, that have two or three co-founders that have, you know, unique skills and are able to navigate it. I know you and I had chatted for a while about, you know, the idea of, of partnering up and, and we realized that we could still, you know, essentially work, work together, but, you know, have our own firms. What are your thoughts on having a partner in law or in business? And do you feel like, you know, there is, it's, it's better to try it or do you feel like, you know, maybe it's better just to do your own thing and then maybe just have like kind of associated people? So, so this answer is kind of based on things that mentors have told me as well. So this isn't, I want to make clear that this isn't just my analysis of it. I, I think that it's, it's good to have partners if, if it makes sense, right? So uh, a lot of people get into partnerships for the wrong reasons. So one example is if somebody feels like, they have a deficiency in, in one area. Let's say, you know, one person is great at doing the legal work, but then another person is really good at rainmaking and bringing clients in. So it seems, okay, well, this could be a really good partnership because, uh, you know, let's say the rainmaker isn't particularly good at servicing the client and the person who's really good at servicing the client isn't great at bringing in the clients. You know, in that situation, I think that they could both see, okay, well, it makes sense for us to partner up. But I think that it has to go deeper than that. I think that they have to take a look at every aspect of their lives and whether they're going to match up because ultimately getting into a partnership, you know, you're dealing not only with that person's business side, but their, their personal side, you know, their, their family side in, in terms of how their life is going to change or evolve. And you want to make sure that you know, you're in the same respect on all of these different angles. And because there's so many variables in all of our lives, I think that thinking through those issues early on is extremely helpful. Like for us, you know, we were talking about it for months and we, we realized that, you know, we're doing well referring business to each other. 
And, you know, we both wanted that sense of control and we both, you know, didn't have to go to partners to get approval to, to make a decision. And I, I think that that was kind of the biggest thing for both of us was we stepped back and said, hey, wait a second, you know, is, is control something I'm willing to give up for the purposes of having uh, a partner? Or is it more beneficial for, you know, that partner to have, you know, their own business or their own firm and me to have my own business and my own firm? And we can refer business back and forth while still continuing to have that collaborative relationship that, you know, also results in, in more business because you can each run your, your business your own ways. And, and so I would say that that is probably the biggest thing is just thinking through those challenges and not just the good things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's so true. And I think getting to the details, because you're right, because like, just, just because you guys have complementary skills is not enough or, you know, different skills, because I think we had talked to, you know, we had lunch with several different people. And one of the individuals we had lunch with, I remember he was kind of the rainmaker for his firm. And, and that became very difficult for him because he was the one having the, with the pressure to bring in the business constantly. And then the other lawyers in the firm had a more of a contingency practice. So they would get paid out, you know, every year or year and a half, but you know, it'd be good payouts, but you know, what about the, the monthly spend that you guys have, you know, to do. So I think that was a challenge and maybe they weren't, they weren't all on the same page when that was first, you know, thought of, or maybe first addressed. And, you know, and I even had a personal experience, you know, I, I learned kind of the hard way and which is where, you know, I advise clients all the time as, you know, who are in partnerships or, you know, we are discussing operating agreements and whatnot, you know, the, the challenges that could come up, you don't think about, you know, communication and yeah, goals, personal goals. You know, if, if your goal is to make a million dollars a year, but the other person wants to more, maybe have more of a family life and, you know, is fine with, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a year, that's not going to that's not always going to make sense unless you guys can make sure that the documents allow that for that to happen. Right. If someone wants to put in, you know, 23 hours a day to the firm and make a million dollars, but the other person wants to put in, you know, you know, eight or 10, then I think you just have to have that understanding that yes, the one person may not be compensated as much for what, what they're putting in, but you guys can still grow a firm together. And yeah. And I think, you know, the importance of also preserving relationships because, you know, when these, if, you know, if these partnerships fail, it can really put a strain on, on that, on that friendship or that, that partnership, you know, which is, which is, I think, not something that I think you and I really wanted at risk too, because, you know, we're, we're good friends and, and whatnot, but, you know, I've seen him, I've seen him work too. So it's not to say that, you know, it can't work, but, but I think there's a lot more to consider and probably getting advice from mentors, advisors, you know, other people in your network is really smart before you kind of jump into uh, a partnership or, you know, multiple partnership. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it absolutely can work. And it's not to say like, for example, if we had partnered up, uh, it's not to say that uh, it wouldn't work. I think right. it probably would have. It's just, I think that there's trade-offs as with anything in life, right? There's trade-offs and it's, you know, it, it, become, it comes down to that and the ability right. to say, okay, well, I think that the, the, the biggest thing for a successful partnership, I think is similar to good marriage, right? Just having open communication, having the ability to, to trust the other side with or your partner with whatever it is you're going to tell them and however it is that you're feeling, whatever it is you want to express, and then them being open with you and then the ability to kind of work through whatever challenges they are yeah. and, and talk through those issues. And I think that a lot of marriages and partnerships fall apart for that reason. You know, we never had that. We always had, you know, the ability to kind of chat through things and talk through issues. So that's been great. Yeah. You know, the other part of it is, is considering geography too, right? Mm -hmm. 
and whether you want to have your partners nearby or, or whether they can move. And that could be a, a big aspect to it too, is, is okay, where the office is going to be located? Is everybody going to have to come into the office? And who does the staff report to? And some of those other issues. So, you know, absolutely it can work. And, and I think the key to, to any of it is just having good mechanisms in place to be able to work through the issues. I mean, I think you made a great point of, you know, if, if somebody wants to work 23 hours a day and the other partner wants to work eight to 10 hours a day, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to work. It just means that you got to talk through that and figure out, okay, what makes sense in that regard between the allocation of the time and the resources and the money that's coming in as to, so everybody's happy and nobody feels like they're putting in more than the other person. Yeah. And I think you're, you're, you know, the, the parallel to like a marriage makes perfect sense. Right. And I think of marriages, if we did this with our, you know, personal partners, it makes a lot of sense too. Right. Like talking about your values and talking about, you know, what your goals are for the future. Not, not always do we do that with our, even our partners we're dating. Right. Because uh, we feel sometimes that's a little bit too formulaic or whatever it might be, you know, but I think, you know, having those conversations with, with them. And, and also I think, communication, right? How we communicate is so important, right? It's not always what you say, but how you say it. And, and I think, you know, one thing you talk about law school, it kind of, it breaks you a little bit as a person, as a, when you become a lawyer. <laughs> Somewhere along the lines, I don't know exactly the pinpoint, the, the day of the time where, where my mind broke and, and it was kind of now re, you know, put together in terms of how you you know, discuss things and, and talk about things, but somewhere along the lines that you have to unlearn some things when you're now talking to your to your partner or even, you know, maybe even just anyone else because you you look at things differently and you evaluate things differently based on your teaching in law school, but then that doesn't always translate well to the, you know, to real life. So one one great book that I, you know, recommend to everyone is Nonviolent Communication by uh, Marshall Goldsmith, I think. And uh, yeah, we'll have to put that in the show notes, but it's uh, one of the great ways to like, really, it, it's, a, it's a way to get your point across to people without you know, having them feel defensive or you, feeling, or you saying in a way that maybe may encourage people to feel defensive because I think that's sometimes so important, you know, just how, how we say things to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting that a lot of practicing law is, the ability to communicate, yet we don't have any communications courses. At least, you know, right. in my yeah. law school, we didn't. I didn't have any communications courses, and I don't even think any were offered. Right. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, it's bizarre since at the end of the day, regardless of whether you're in litigation or whether you're in transactional work, the ability to communicate and to understand where the other side's coming from and have that uh, emotional rapport and that emotional IQ is so crucial. But but we don't have any classes on it. We're just expected to kind of know it. And, and, you know, we've been lucky enough that you and I kind of focus on that and, and, and naturally kind of understand that's so important. But I, I think that uh, a lot of other lawyers struggle with that because they haven't, nobody's told them that that's important. Yeah. 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 And, and uh, yeah, it's so true because um, just us talking to other lawyers, you know, you see that it's like, you know, <laughs> it, it's not a normal conversation, you know, and, and I think that's a lot of its fear, a lot of its, you know, a lot of it, these insecurities that come out, you know, when you, when you deal with these other lawyers, but, but yeah, they're, if they're not given the tools, meditation or other, other coping mechanisms to deal with those insecurities, then it comes out in unfortunate ways that I think causes suffering and trauma to those around you. Right. And I think that's why, divorce rates, you know, substance abuse is so high in, in the legal community because 
we don't have you know proper dealing dealing mechanisms with that. I, I'm glad you know. I know there's a lot more people now emphasizing this in the legal community, but but I think it definitely it's it's still a long ways to go to to you know right the ship. So. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I wanted to you know kind of shift gears a little bit and also talk a little bit more about your firm and kind of what you do because you know I, I know you have a you know you and I have worked on some business litigation cases, some IP litigation cases, but I know you have a very very successful and you know busy personal injury practice as well. So can you tell us a little bit more about kind of the types of cases you take on? Maybe an interesting story of uh, one of the one of the cases you handled where I know there's a few, you know, big judgments you were able to get for a client. I remember there was one case where two or three lawyers passed on it and you got it and and were able to settle it for for multiple six figures. So maybe if you don't mind sharing a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So, you know, the, the way I kind of summarize it is my firm represents injured people and injured businesses. So on the business litigation end, we deal with a lot of breach of contract type cases, disputes with vendors, disputes with customers or other businesses as it relates to whether it's contractual relations where they had a contract and somebody simply didn't perform. Or more recently, we've seen a a large uptick in partnership disputes where partners in a business, you know, one's accusing the other of taking more money out than they should have in the form of distributions or expenses that were personal expenses, but were run through the business. And so, you know, in, in that regard, it's all, you know, financial injuries that, that we're dealing with. And in the personal injury realm, you know, we deal with a lot of car crash cases, trip and falls, slip and falls, that kind of thing. And, you know, in, in either one of those, I, I think that the key is just understanding what the client is looking for. You know, it's, it's the, the more money, generally speaking, that, that we're looking for in a case, uh, the more heavily it's going to be litigated. And that's okay. It's just, you know, we always want to make sure that we're aligned with the client. So, you know, the, the case you were talking about with that, that ended up being a referral from your firm, right? So, yeah. so that was a case where the client had other lawyers, another prominent personal injury lawyer who he had worked with. And that lawyer had recommended that he take a certain settlement. And we just, I, I didn't feel like it was sufficient. And, and so what ended up happening was that that particular individual was looking for other lawyers and happened to, to connect with my firm through you. And what had ended up happening was the client had been riding his bicycle down the street when he got hit by a car. And so he suffered severe injuries to his leg, fractured leg. Uh, he had a blood clot that came loose. And so that caused uh, him to be hospitalized for multiple days. So it was, it was a traumatic experience for him and it was heavily litigated and, uh, you know, it was a situation in which that lawyer was saying, look, I really think you got to take this, the settlement offer, because it was very close to trial at that point. It had been litigated for years. And the client's position was that he in reality wouldn't be able to get much of anything after paying his medical bills because his medical bills were so high. So my office stepped in and, you know, I talked to the client to talk to him about, you know, what his realistic expectations were, what he'd like to do, you know, what are his fears? you know, what's the ideal outcome here? And what are you most afraid of, you know, to get both both ends of the spectrum. So then we can work towards coming up with a solution that works for the client. Mm -hmm. And so we ended up litigating the case. And uh, it was a very big, large defense firm here in uh, Southern California that uh, was handling the defense. And one of their top trial attorneys was going to be trying it. And we ended up going to mediation and we ended up settling the case for multiples of what that original lawyer had recommended the client settle it for. 
And I think part of it was just the, the willingness to work it up, the willingness to, you know, sit with the client and completely understand how this injury affected their life. Because at the end of the day, it's not just, you know, an injury, it's not just a case. This is somebody's life that we're dealing with. Yeah. And so I always want to make sure that I understand how it's affected their life so I can communicate it to whether it's a jury, whether it's a mediator, you know, you just want to make sure that you're, you're able to connect them with the client in terms of how they're feeling. So, you know, my approach to both of those areas, business litigation and personal injuries, at the end of the day, you know, having the emotional intelligence to say, okay, what is it that you're, you, what is it that you really want and how do we get there? So my job is to, you know, the, I tell my clients, it's their job to tell me what they want. And it's my job to try to figure it out and try to help them get what they want. And so, you know, I I think that that's something that's also missed, you know, and I haven't heard of law schools teaching that, but at the end of the day, you, that, that's something that's so critical is what does the client want? And I think that what we were talking about earlier, many times get in the way, you know, of the ego, what is it that I want, right? Do I want to take this case to trial? Because I think I can get multiple times what they're offering, or I can get double what they're offering. And now I've got, you know, a huge verdict in my name versus the client maybe would have been happy to not go through trial and take the, 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 to take the lesser money, but to not sit through trial. And at the end of the day, I think the most effective litigator is one that's willing to go through trial and is excited about trial, but doesn't necessarily force the trial just because they want to go through trial. Right. Right. No, it's so important. You're, you're right. I mean, I think, you know, if you're a litigator, you've got to be ready for trial. You've got to be ready to, to see the case the whole way, because I think if you're not, you know, they can, you know, I think other lit- litigators can sometimes smell that and, you know, could, could work against you. So, I mean, I think that's the mindset. Yeah. That's so important for, for being effective. So uh, that's great. Yeah. And I know you have that mindset, you know, us, us, you know, chatting, you know, many times and you doing, you know, all this, all this additional work to, to be ready for trial is, is great. Very nice. You know, talking about kind of the current state of the world too, you know, you see, you mentioned kind of, you're seeing a lot more partnership disputes now. What have you seen? How's your practice changed or what have you been seeing since the pandemic uh, started in terms of the types of cases? You know, I know people are driving less, so that's, you know, affecting, you know, kind of personal injury uh, cases as well. You know, how's, how have things changed for you during the pandemic? And, you know, do you have any uh, advice for people kind of dealing with, with challenging issues with their business or, or injuries or something like that right now? Yeah, so, so business has changed a lot for me. And I'm curious to hear, you know, how it's changed for you as well, because um, you're right that car accident cases have dropped dramatically, which is good. Excuse me. Um, it's good because, you know, people aren't getting hurt as much. But the reality is, is that, you know, business for, for us has, has slowed down. In, in car accident cases, slip and falls, trip and falls, any of those, because people aren't moving around as much, those cases have, have slowed. And, and a surprising turn has been that on our business litigation cases, which are primarily hourly cases, have seen a sudden uptick in disputes with there's vendor disputes because, you know, somebody's either refusing to pay because of, and it's, it's generally not, you know, them claiming, oh, well, we can't pay because of COVID. It's, some other argument that they're trying to use to try to get out of pain. So we've seen a big uptick in that. And then, like I said, the, the partnership disputes, we've seen a big uptick in that. And so what we've been doing now more so is, is focusing more also on business litigation matters. And so my office is launching a subscription service slash a fractional general in-house counsel model that we're helping clients avoid these really expensive legal disputes because, you know, when they come to me, it's usually too late at that point. 
Right. Uh, they've already, you know, I, I, well, by the time they come to me to, to handle these disputes and we've worked on these together where it's, you know, it can be tens of thousands of dollars or more to resolve disputes that could have been dealt with much easier had it just had the proper contracts in place, had the issues been thought through properly before they got there. And right. so what I'm doing now is I'm thinking, okay, well, how can I help businesses avoid these really expensive mistakes? How can I help them uh, avoid going into litigation, which is so time consuming and so expensive? And so we're reaching out to our former clients and seeing if that's of interest. And, and some clients have expressed interest, but that's, that's something that they're looking to do. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I think the subscription model is interesting. You know, I've chat, chatted about that a little bit. What, you know, what kind of motivated you go to there? Because I know that's kind of a new, new way of practicing law and, you know, not many service, you know, not many other, especially older firms are offering that. Why, why, why subscription model? So I think the subscription model, two things. I think that on the one hand, it allows us to stay in touch with the clients and better understand their business. And, and that's from a, a client service perspective. From uh, a revenue perspective, it's recurring revenue, which is great. But ultimately, I think it's, it's, it's a more unique and, and better ability to serve the client because a lot of law firms haven't been doing it. You're right. It's, it's the, the biggest companies tend to have law firms on retainers that they're paying on a monthly basis and they get great legal advice. And many times they'll avoid these really expensive legal disputes because of that very reason. And so what I was saying was that a lot of these small to mid-sized businesses are having disputes that end up becoming something that is far more expensive once it's gone into litigation. And they could have avoided it had they just planned for it properly. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, that, that whole idea of uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of medicine. And I think in this situation, it's extremely helpful if the clients, if I can be there to help them avoid these issues, so then they're not coming to me when, you know, everything's kind of hit the fan and everything's all over the place because I've, I've noticed that a lot of the contracts and we've dealt with this on the cases that we've dealt with together, the contracts that other companies or other firms have drafted or the clients have taken from LegalZoom, oh yeah. Um, yeah. you know, any of those companies where, where it's this more generic contract, they haven't thought through the problems and it inevitably ends up resulting in far more in litigation expense. Um, than had they just dealt with it sooner. And so I think it's a, it's a good opportunity to provide value. Yeah. So, so important. You're so, you're so right. Yeah. I mean, we've, we have a subscription with some of our clients too, and we've been kind of talking about, you know, launching, relaunching ours because yeah, it's so important because I think that's the one unfortunate thing about, you know, a lawyer and even a doctor too, right? Like, you know, when you, when people are scared to go to them because they're, they're worried about the cost, and, you know, at least in, with, with doctors, you have insurance, right? And I think subscription plans are some, a little bit like insurance in some ways that you have this, you know, if you ever need it and you can give us a call, but, but, you know, it's interesting that, you know, it hasn't really taken off as much. There's like, you know, services out there that do offer kind of legal insurance, you know, but they're, you know, you don't get the best quality there. You know, I think this, I like the subscription because you can choose the right lawyer for you and then have them ready to go when you, when you need them, because, you know, with a lot of these other, you know, services that have been out around for a while, I think the problem is you get someone new every time and they give you a form letter or a form contract and they don't really think and listen about your, about your issues. So, so yeah, that's great. And I love to see innovation. You know, I think the law, you and I have talked about, you know, many, many times, like the law is so slow to innovate at the, at the speed that other industries are innovating, you know, financial and other, other industries. So I'm, you know, it's, I think it's, 
I think there's a lot of opportunity for us, you know, lawyers who are actually interested in innovation to do something unique to improve the, the you know, we talk about client services. It's, I've always talked about like the, it's the user experience. You know, when you think about software and, and technology, you have user inter- interfaces, you know, UI, UX, and the law, I think of it the same thing. How do you improve the, the, the client, the CI, CX, you know, the, the client interface, the client interaction, because really, you know, it, I, it, it's, I always think, you know, when I tell my, I tell my staff, you know, we have Monday meetings and I said, you know, I always use this Maya, Maya Angelou quote, right? People, you might, have, you might have heard it. It's like, people will forget what you said. They'll, they'll forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. And I think it's, it's a human, it's a human characteristic. It's a human element that is, that it's, it's true across everyone, every race, sex, you know, whatever it might be you know, even money, right? When we're talking about money, it's a, it's a feeling that people have that, that you're, you're really giving them feeling of protection of, of peace of mind. So it's, it's, you know, beyond just numbers oftentimes with, with law. And I think you, you do a great job of really getting to that under underlying concern of what clients want. They may say money, they may say, I want to make this per-. You know, oftentimes, how many times we want to hear people say, I want to make this person pay, you know, they did, they did me wrong. I want to make them pay. But that doesn't, you know, but then the question is like, how much do you want to pay to make them pay, right? Because it's, it's, it's a trade-off. And, and sometimes, you know, we save clients from being their, their enemy, their worst enemy in some, some situations. So, so that's great. You know, I think there's, there's, you know, another two hours of so of things we could talk about, you know, but I want to be conscious of your time. You know, maybe before we kind of sign off, maybe you can, t- can you tell people about how they get a hold of you? So certain things you guys got going on right now and, uh, you know, just where, where they find you? Yeah, yeah. So you can find me on Instagram. I've got new posts going up every day. You can find me at Farag Amin, so P-A-R-A-G-A-M-I-N-E-S-Q on Instagram. Also go to my website, which is www.lawpla.com. So those are the two best resources. Typically, we've also got a YouTube channel, but I found that people typically spend more time on Instagram than on YouTube. So we've got uh, a lot more content on, on Instagram that you can find and yeah i mean it's it's, it's been great it's, it's always a pleasure chatting with you and, and you know talking to you about all, everything it's you know you've always got nuanced insights to into whether it's we're talking about sports or we're talking about practicing law or we're talking about technology and the way forward so uh, it's been an absolute pleasure awesome man well thank you so much man for the time and you know i think everyone found this really helpful as it was really really great to chat and uh, yeah well until next time let's just say that until next time all right thanks man all right bye